0: Oh, you guys, you know, we've talked so much during the pandemic about everything that we've all endured, right? And and propel forward here. Years from now, when you're chatting with the grandkids about the pandemic of 2020, you can't leave out the part about how everybody was stuck at home so they had to start streaming television shows. And, okay, admit it, you watched Tiger King. I mean, who didn't? I did. I think Barack Obama did too. All right. Far and away, one of the two top most popular shows during the lockdown was The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, right? I mean, if you know chess or you watch that drama, then you know that chess is a lot like life. Every move matters and impacts every turn thereafter. But chess is also a lot like business. Your strategy guides your success. Sometimes you make the wrong move. You stumble. You fall. You fall but it doesn't mean that you can't win down the line. And of course, it can be really spectacular when you operate in silence until you can finally yell out, checkmate. (laughs) Here's one dramatic pivot that brought a champion chess player into the world of business, Alan Treffler. Okay, you got to know this name. He was a world-renowned chess champ at the age of 19. And in 1975, he tied for the World Open Chess Championship. But now, over 40 years later, he's the CEO. okay, let me just get to it of a multi-billion dollar software company called Pega Systems. So how in the world did Alan go from Suburban Kid in Massachusetts to world-renowned chess player to billionaire CEO and founder? Well, l- let's find out from Alan. Alan Treffler, welcome to everyone Talks to Liz.
1: Oh, hey Liz, so uh, I always like describing myself as founder and still CEO. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because you know, CEOs come and go. But oh, yeah. It, you know, the way I found uh, the best way to build something was was to go out and start it. And you know, I think that 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 combination of uh, well, a little bit of risk taking, a little bit of not knowing what I was getting into, <laughs> and a and a whole lot of working with a great team and working with good clients is what actually got Pega to. You know, over 3 decades later be where we are today and hopefully the foundation for a lot more.
0: Let's not gloss over what you just said about still CEO. You know, people don't understand this. Founders are like pioneers, right? Um CEOs are more like settlers. They are two different animals. So when you can actually go from being the pioneer to then the settler, that's a big deal. That's a neat trick because they often kick out the pioneers.
1: <laughs> they 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 do i've been fortunate to uh, be stubborn enough and persistent enough to not get kicked out and to uh, also look the reality is there are different skill sets required at the moments of genesis of a business and the moments you try to grow it and build it um and it's been an interesting journey to try to pick up those evolving skill sets
0: yeah yeah okay okay well wait i have to ask so as a chess champ Did you love The Queen's Gambit or was it a little cringy? Because, you know, when you're in that world and you know it so well and then somebody tries to dramatize it, like in Hollywood, oh, let's do a dramedy, you know, or whatever. (laughs) I mean, everyone watched the HBO series The Newsroom and I'm like, "Mm, yeah, it's a little cringy. (laughs) What did
1: you think? I, I thought it was excellently done. Me too. And one of the reasons was they brought Agari Kosbaroff, who had been world champion for 20 years, To come in and actually be sort of an advisor to the team to make sure, you know, what normally happens in those things is they're actually like dumb mistakes on the board (laughs) or the (laughs) pieces aren't set up right. And all of the games that were played actually were drawn uh, from famous master games. And of course, we're all 100% accurate. So, from from that point of view, it was very uncringeworthy. And actually, I think showed some pretty, pretty excellent chess.
0: Well, you know, I come from a chess family. I learned way later than all my siblings because my dad was he was such a believer in chess as sort of a as sort of a metaphor for life in many ways. But um, how did you come to learn and, and reach such lofty
1: heights in the chess world? Well, you know, it was interesting because I learned chess uh, from my dad, who was a first-generation America he, American. He came over um, after having survived World War II in Europe, and you know, started. He began a business working with his hands. He uh, used to love playing chess with with friends of his, and I learned looking over his shoulder and then playing with him and having him crush me. Um, up until the point, I sort of made it into made it into high school, but at that point, I started to get pretty good, pretty fast. And you know, I think he might have he might have been a little bit uh, himself, sort of cringing the first time I won. But you know, <laughs> later on, he was extremely excited as I I became the New England junior champion and the you know high school champion at at that point and. Uh it, it I just sort of I would describe as fell into it. I found it was just a very interesting and, and natural way to express thought and to uh, to engage and and be able to spend time with somebody, which is a wonderful thing.
0: Well, I also don't want to gloss over you becoming this this champion. Uh, you got to take us to the game in 1975. You did enter this World Open Chess Championship, but you were ranked hundred and fifteenth. So, where do you get the moxie, or, or you know, that the guts to do something like that?
1: Well, and, and also, where'd I get the money? Because I <laughs> scraped together enough money to go to New York for four and a half days, which was the the tournament. And you know, me and four other guys shared a hotel room and sleeping on the floors and such. And so, it was not a very glamorous introduction. But as it as it turned out, I was uh, playing pretty well, and my style has always been pretty sharp, pretty aggressive, and I was able to win against some much much higher players. And at the end, I tied for first place with a very famous international grandmaster, out of uh, uh, you know out of a, a, a well a series of of very very strong players. So what I loved is that the uh, the, the New York Times, when they published an article about it, published a headline, which is to me still memorable. It said, bright young men answer the question, Bobby who? <laughs> Bobby Fisher had just, you can go look it up in the Times, it's actually one of, my, one of my good games in it. Uh, Bobby Fisher had just you know, gone over the parapet of sanity, and they were looking for folks who might be able to step in.
0: Oh, I mean, when I, when I look at what you were able to accomplish coming from player number 115th as you're ranking, it brings up this thing that I'm always telling my kids and, and quite frankly myself, it is not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog, right? I mean, just because you're a little pipsqueak at the time, you know,
1: doesn't mean you can't somehow take on the Doberman Pincher, but... Um, Well, you know, I I was better than eight hundred and fifty others, so I wasn't like we were at the absolute back. But let's just say it was not exactly something would you get any good odds in Vegas if somebody had asked, might I actually uh, uh, perform at that level?
0: You just referenced your dad and you said he survived World War II. He was a Holocaust survivor. Um, Polish. I want to hear about his experiences as told to you and how that affected your drive in whether it was playing chess or or starting a business?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. So my father uh, survived the war. He was uh, in the Warsaw Ghetto when it fell. He um, never was in a camp, but was in some horrific uh, situations. But you know, it's interesting, and, and I'd say this also to parents and children as they go forward. One of my great sadnesses is my father died quite suddenly um, in, his, in his, late 50s. And I had always thought that we would have a chance to talk more of his experiences and what he went through. But in reality, it was always still pretty uncomfortable. I was still a pretty young guy, and, and he wanted to wait till I was older. And I guess the message I would tell people who are in situations when they have an opportunity to share the things that are important is to not wait because that's always been a deep regret. But what I did learn from him was the importance of drive, of not giving up, of being brave enough to come to a country where he didn't speak the language and where he literally had to sleep on the streets um, for a while while he was establishing himself. But then putting it together, working hard, putting you know two kids through colleges, which would be something he had not ever managed to, to imagine for himself, uh, marrying a college graduate and doing it all um, in, a, in a way that I think lived the American dream. And so that's had a deep uh, impact on me. And I think... You know the value systems that I have both try to live by and, and endorse, and it is um, it is very deep and very personal in that sense.
0: Well, he also was a great example to you. He did start his own business, and as you watch that, you know it's interesting to me that you're you're in college, you're studying computer science. That's one thing, but then saying I am going to start a business is another. Uh, specifically, what led you to start Pegasystems? Because this was pre-internet. I mean, listen, I always joke with the younger kids on my staff saying, I went to Berkeley and we learned Pascal. That was the big computer language. You had to learn a language to get a computer to do basic functions. Uh, But you said, let me go start a business in this world.
1: Well, I didn't say that right off the bat. So I I went to work. I actually spent uh, the better part of a year working with my father um helping him move the family business which he had started and and was what i grew up working in and um, then he really you know didn't think that that's where i should continue to work so i uh he wanted me to take advantage of my education and i went into computer consulting so i had the opportunity to work with some of the the well, at the time, the most sophisticated companies, companies like um, a Citibank and some other large banks that are now you know dead, like Manufacturers Hanover, which has long since been acquired. And I had a chance to see what was considered, you know, particularly in places like City, the state of the art in technology, and it it led me to believe two things. One, it led me to believe that. Boy, there was a tremendous amount that all this emerging technology and all the newest computer technology could do. And two, there was still a lot of opportunities to do it way better and to do a better job of taking care of the business people. And that that was not being addressed by the way a lot of folks were thinking about technology. So um, I, I actually spoke to my boss about trying to do what I ended up doing. And he told me that, well, you know, he didn't think anybody would go for it. And so Two and a half years later, I decided I would go branch out on my own and and start something. It was as a result of a bit of a cosmic push, but sometimes you just got to, to seize the moment, as it were.
0: I don't know if you know Eric Yuan. He's the founder of Zoom, but he had the exact same experience. You know, he was working at Cisco. <laughs> he was in their division for video conferencing, and he went to his boss and he said, we could do this so much better. We could give people a much better experience. And they were like, "Yeah, we got other stuff. We got bigger fish to fry. We're not interested. So he just started Zoom by himself. I mean, that to me is is where, you know, the rubber meets the road for real entrepreneurs, where you say, I don't have to lean on security of an already established business that's paying me health care. And I can see around the corner instead saying I'm going to dive into the water. I don't know how shallow or deep it is, but I'm going to take that chance.
1: Well, I have a feeling that he and uh, certainly I did a lot of reflection before taking that dive, because yeah. uh, it's a pretty scary thing to do. But it, it just seemed like the thing to do at the time. For me, the company that I was working for had been acquired. And I definitely could get another job. I had the opportunity to go to a Stanford business school, or I could start something. And I decided um, with, with some reservations that I would uh, you know, roll those dice and, and go ahead and see if I could put something together, you know. At that point, at the you know the tender age of twenty six was when I made the decision. Okay,
0: can I just make a point to my listeners here? He turned down Stanford Business School and is still a billionaire. I love that story.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I'm not a great fan of counting one's money. You know, I think you know the reality. The reality is, my wife and I, I think, live a pretty uh, you know reasonable lifestyle and. Yeah, we spend our money uh, very primarily on charity and and foundation work and things of that type, which I I think is very consistent with the the values. I know everybody likes to obsess on the the dollar amounts, but uh, the reality is all of my value is in the value of Peg as a company and is being disposed, is being deployed on behalf of the team that works there and our clients And our shareholders. Well, I'd be remiss
0: if I I didn't bring up the fact that it is a software company that, in essence, to simplify, breaks down the complexity walls within a business so that leaders can make better decisions. I mean, some know it as customer relations management, sort of B2B. Am I correct
1: on this? Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it, both B2B and B2C. But if you've got a situation where you've called any of the big credit card companies, because you've had a dispute on a credit card charge, or in a whole variety of situations in which we can provide you know, advice as it relates to a, a healthcare situation. There are a whole lot of places where we're able to bring data and process together mm-hmm. to help organizations just do a better job of engaging with their customers, both from the, the point of view of, of making them more satisfied, but also being more efficient. And that's That's what we've built the company around.
0: This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we'll be right back. You know, you started this company in the 80s before social media, before so much advancement when it comes to startups. Starting a company was different um, than what it is today. How are the differences amazing you? Do you think back on that moment in 1996 where you took Pega public and how different it is today?
1: Well, or even going back into the mid 80s, when we were birthing, Peg, and making the ideas work. You know, in in some ways, it's much easier. But in other ways, I think it's harder to achieve a real long-term outcome. The easier part is, you know, we we founded this before there was a cloud. So we actually had to go out and buy a real computer for hundreds of thousands of, of borrowed dollars to be able to write the software on. I mean, some of the things today, which you could do with a, a wave of the hand and a couple hundred bucks uh, were like major decisions that really really sort of wrecked our brains about what we were capable of supporting and doing, et cetera. I, I think one of the things that's harder today is frankly, there's so much BS out there. Everything to me in this business it, you know, it sounds the same. There's so much hyperbole. Mm-hmm. There's so little differentiation that um, I think that for a company that is is you know being born or growing, uh, it's uh, even harder than it was to get this you know distinguished air cover to be able to to able to get people to really understand what you do because everything sounds the same.
0: And to that end people who will let you fail a little bit you know i mean everything's in real time now you look at you look at companies say for example and this is recent history tesla tesla had a lot of near death experiences and it still survives lordstown you know a, a similar electric vehicle startup type of situation, I mean, they're being pounded so hard by the world because their mistakes are out there for everyone to see. And it's really, it's really kind of discouraging because don't you think that failure is part of the scaffolding of a really
1: strong business? Well, I I think there are lots of different ways to fail. And you know there are the what I would describe as errors where you have a chance to recover and reposition and go back at it again. And I think um, a good leader finds ways to do things that are bold, but that also have su- survivable and sustainable perimeters mm-hmm. where you're not going to flop all the way down to the all the way to the, down to the ground. I I do think that. Being able to learn from either mistakes or things that don't go right is frankly a, a critical part of being not just an entrepreneur, but being a human being and certainly being a chess player. You better learn from your mistakes.
0: Well, to that end, Alan, could, do you remember a mistake that you may have made in the early days where you really got nervous and you thought, I, I'm really scared. I don't know if this can survive, the business can survive. And how did you overcome that?
1: Well, I can, I can remember some, you know, really critical moments where we had to make decisions about if we wanted to, you know, invest in this type of technology or another type of technology, because you can, particularly when you're starting out, you can't do it all. And also about deciding who some of the key members were to bring on the team and t- trying to figure out if you could, you know improve somebody who had lots of skills, but or, <laughs> might not, might not fit culturally or, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, I think, I think from some of those mistakes, I learned some, you know, pretty important lessons. Sometimes it have to be relearned, but, you know, for example, I, I don't think you can ever fix people problems with process. You know, I fell into the trap of just assuming that, the people I would deal with all had my values mm-hmm. and would would ultimately want to do things in the way that you know, perhaps egomaniacally, I thought was right. You know, and and um, what you learn is you need to really invest a lot of time and energy in alignment in terms of the values, and uh, not, as I said, not try to fix things that are unfixable. And I would say some of my earliest mistakes, particularly as it as it related to building the early team and figuring out how to, you know, grow from a handful of people to a hundred people to, to, you know, now we're up over 6,000. As you go through these stages, there are just, you know, different opportunities to get things right and get things wrong. But I think a lot of the lessons about the importance of of values and great relationships and investing the right time with people and being highly vested in customers. I, I think those are things that persist.
0: Well what is the trick? Teach me because you know we all care passionately. In fact, find any successful person and they care uber passionately about the climb, the effort, the reach, everything. And you get people on board and some of them They look at it as a job, not a career. And you want them to be as focused as you are and care as much. And I remember saying to a manager once, I want to win so badly that I sometimes can't sleep at night. And he said, so do I. And I said, but a lot of people that are here don't. And he said, 10%. Liz, all I need are 10% of the people to be like me. In fact, and he claimed it was Eisenhower, but since then I have searched every Eisenhower quote and I can't find it. So if anybody finds the damn thing, get it to me. He says, Eisenhower said, I just need 10% of the people to fight as hard as possible and then we can do it and succeed and win.
1: Well, you know, I I, I think you should aspire to more than that, but I do think that getting those value right, values right is a key. And there's a... You know, I'm not a great fan of lots and lots of business books, but there's one that I think really you know I read much later in my career that encapsulated some of this that that you know i'll I'll, I'll share. It's uh, by a guy named Patrick Lencioni, who writes a lot about uh, uh, about how to get teams to work together. Mm-hmm. And what he talks about is that the, the critical aspects when you bring somebody into the team, is, is not just are they technically capable and can they do the job and do a great job. You can easily get a sense of that, If if they can't, you'll know it quickly and, and be able to rectify it. He describes the three aspects of, of differentiation there as being is the person hungry, which I would interpret as what you're describing. Do they, mm-hmm. do they have that passion that they, they want to achieve that's important to them as part of who they are? Uh, the second is: Are they humble? A uh, true humility, where they're able to recognize both some of their limitations and also the importance of the views of others. And the third is: Are they people smart? Which is: Can they really engage with other people? And you know, I, I would tell you that with a lot of hindsight, when I look back at it, those three attributes—hungry, humble, and people smart—really, I think, define a lot of the elements of the value system. You know, the way the way we've described it at Pega is we talk about it as being um, externally focused. That is, instead of thinking of the world and what we're doing and what we're trying to achieve from our own vantage point, to really look outside and say, what would this look like to a customer or mm-hmm. to a participant or somebody who is trying to use this technology? And to be pretty... You know, well, self-critical. Yeah. About is it really good? You know, there's a lot of stuff out there that was obviously good for the inventors, but not good for the people who had to use it. So, do you recall
0: the name? Was it called the Ideal Team Player?
1: It it, it actually is the Ideal Team Player. Okay,
0: Patrick players. Lencioni, the Ideal Team Player, because he's oh.
1: got a lot of books out there. <laughs> he does. He does. I, I happen to I happen to think that that framework even less the book than the framework, I think, really hits a couple of core values uh, that are easy to miss.
0: So, Alan, you know, today your company's pulling in billions of dollars. You've got more than 5,500 employees. You work with big names, Bank of America, FedEx, Cisco, Heathrow Airport Holdings. Does your expertise in chess get any of the credit for your success?
1: You know, I, I I do think that I draw on chess and a chess sort of way of thinking pretty routinely as part of of ongoing problem solving. Uh, I I, I, w- I would tell you that dealing in business and working with um, a, you know a, a meaningful team and and these sorts of clients is a lot more complicated and a lot more sort of multidimensional mm-hmm. than any you know, 64 square chessboard could ever yeah. be. So yeah. it's uh, but the the way of thinking, you know, I've I've described how a, a master thinks about chess as involving three phases. The the first phase is pattern recognition. Is what I'm dealing with in some ways similar to things that I've seen that either worked out or didn't work out. And how do I figure out the pattern the next stage is sort of, if then else, given the pattern, how do I pick my moves and go through the, you know, if I do this, they do this, what what might come back, what might be different? And then the third stage, which um, is easy to forget, but it can be pretty important, is to kind of step back for a moment and ask yourself, what am I missing? Have I gotten myself sort of uh, inculcated into something that's our old patterns and sure. old moves? And do I really need to you know, not fall for a back rank mate or some other horrific mistake? Because you can talk yourself into things. And then only if you step back, you say, well, you know, maybe we're missing a couple of things there. So those three phases, which I associate with how I've thought about chess, I think are highly applicable in a, in a business setting as well. Do you think they should teach
0: chess in elementary school?
1: Uh, I think that uh, it's a great game for kids. I would strongly recommend that that people teach their kids how to play chess. I think that it it does provide a level of structured thinking. It's not for everyone. No. So, you know, I wouldn't make it a required curriculum, but I, I think it should be encouraged.
0: You see that 60 Minutes episode where the kids from a poor region of the country, I believe it was in the South. I'd have to check that. But a top chess master went there and said, I'm gonna live here for a year, I'm gonna gather up a bunch of, as the kids describe themselves, poor redneck kids. I'm gonna teach them chess and I'm gonna see how high they get in the tournament process. And they won it. There was a big turn they came to New York. I don't know what it was, but it was it was a lot of kid teams and and they won.
1: Yeah, as I recall, that was a wonderful story about a national championship team. And I think it really showed that with great teaching and with the ability to kindle some passion in the students, that you can really pull out that sort of inner drive and Mm -hmm. get kids who otherwise might not have ever felt accomplished in an objective setting to actually be able to go and, and have that sense of accomplishment and pride that they were able to really kick the butts of a, a lot of you know much more privileged uh, sort of groups and teams and, and, and settings. I, I think that's a terrific story. And I do think chess is an example of something that does create um, more of a level pe- playing field for people who have that passion to be able to dig in and, and, and accomplish.
0: Alan, you know, as we finish up, I I would love to know what you think your father would have thought of the success you have found. And I'm getting the sense here, the more important part of this, the philanthropic piece of, of giving so much away to so many different needy organizations.
1: I, um, I'd like to think that he would be both happy and proud. I think he would be a little bit relieved because there was a part of him who, uh, at least from what he told me, was always sure I was going to be an incredible failure. So, (laughs) (laughs) as, As he would frequently remind me, he had a very what I would describe as a sort of a European style of reinforcement, which for yeah. both me and my brother was a little heavy on the, why haven't you also done this? Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I think <laughs> that the, the, the values he showed are very much the values that uh, got inculcated into my childhood and, and my growing up. And it is a, it is a great sadness for me, that he never actually got to see me um, start the business and grow the business. But I, I do feel in a lot of ways he has. And certainly, his influence has uh, seen me through this.
0: Oh, It's an amazing, amazing story. And um, many, many more successes ahead for you and your family. Alan, thank you for telling your story to Everyone Talks to Liz.
1: Well, Liz, I can understand why everyone talks to you. You're a really easy <laughs> person to talk to. Uh, Thank you. Well,
0: you got to teach me to be a little bit better than chess. I have never beaten my son, Julian. And I just, i uh, give me a book to read on chess to make me smart really fast. And don't say chess for dummies, because I already did that
1: one. <laughs> I'll find and send you a link. How's that?
0: Please. Yes, I would love that, Alan. Alan Treffler, uh, Good luck with Pega Systems, and uh, we'll be we'll be hearing about you as the time goes by. We really I hope you.
1: so. Well, thank you. A real pleasure. Love to talk to you again.
0: Anytime. So you guys, all right. That's your that's your um, order. I want you all to at least try and play chess if you never have before, um, because it really makes you think four steps. I'm sure Alan was thinking 38 steps down the road, but it it really helps with success. And on top of that, listening to stories like Alan's. And then of course, once you you know have a little bit of money, you got to invest it. So you got to watch Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Fox Business Network because it's the claim and countdown. That's what we do there. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.